This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah, and you're listening to episode 24. Imagine being the first woman or man in your profession ever, and then imagine you were appointed to that position by the President of the United States of America. No pressure, right? That's the story of today's guest on Illuminate. Judge Sarah Evans Barker was the first female to be appointed U.S. District Court Judge. She was appointed by President Ronald Reagan more than 30 years ago and serves the Southern District of Indiana. Being a female judge was so rare when Judge Sarah was appointed, she often had attorneys in her courtroom slip up and call her sir. One time, she even had a defendant in one of her cases read to her the Old Testament where it says that women should not be in a position to judge men. Kind of a stupid thing to do when you're in a position to be judged by a woman. In today's interview, Judge Sarah tells us so many stories like that one. She talks about the day she got the phone call from President Reagan. She explains the unique partnership she and her husband Ken found while raising their three children. And she even shares details of some of her most difficult cases and candidly describes how those sentencing decisions still weigh heavy on her mind. Today's interview feels more like a conversation with a friend than an interview, and maybe that's because it was. I should mention that I am lucky enough to call Judge Sarah a personal friend and mentor of mine. And in this interview, you'll hear why I'm, quote, allowed to call her Judge Sarah instead of Judge Barker, because I would never make it a practice to refer to a judge by their first name rather than their last name, but that's how Judge Sarah prefers it. She is one of a kind, and I am honored she took time out of her busy schedule to record this interview with me, and it's my pleasure to bring it to you. Enjoy my conversation with Judge Sarah Evans-Barker. Well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, Judge Sarah Evans-Barker. Uh, thank you. I'm honored to be included in your programming. Well, we appreciate you. Uh, I mean, you are obviously fit, fitting us in in a rather busy schedule. So thank you so much for doing this. I know we had to reschedule a couple of times. So I was happy to just get any sliver of your day. <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, you know, I always say about scheduling, you live by the schedule and you die by the schedule. So it's not always something you can control, uh, but it's always something you have to manage. Yes. Well, Carol did a wonderful job managing yeah, yours. Yeah, so. Yes, she was wonderful. Um, so just to level set, I'm going to let everybody know about our relationship, and then yes, we'll good. launch into who you are. But I was fortunate enough to be part of a, uh, a program here in Indianapolis called the Stanley K. Lacey Leadership Program, SKL for short. Mm-hmm. And um, Judge Sarah Evans-Barker was the moderator of our program. So it's a nine-month Um, program. We meet once a month for an entire day. This the class does. There are 25 individuals in the class and um, Judge Sarah led us through it. And I and I just want to also preface that I'm allowed to call you Judge Sarah, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, In the class. That's a step up from what some people call me, but (laughs) usually not to my face. (laughs) Yeah, we were we were told to call you Judge Judge Sarah. So I'm so used to that. Although when I was scheduling with Carol, I was careful to change it to Judge Barker just so I 
you know, she may not have known that that was our relationship. Um, so you are a U.S. District Court judge for the Southern District of Indiana. Yes. And there are two districts, Correct. Southern and Northern, in Indiana. But is that the case in all states? No. Some states have more than two districts. Some states are a single district. The District of Massachusetts, for example, is uh, the state of Massachusetts is one district. I uh, Pennsylvania is three districts, but in Indiana, it's two. It's set by federal statute. Uh, it's intended to reflect the population uh, so that there's some comparability uh, in terms of the uh, demand for judicial resources. And then they assign judges by statute uh, to each district based on, uh, basically on, on caseload. And so what kinds of cases are you um, hearing in terms of, is it is it criminal cases or civil cases? Well, they, they say about the federal courts that we're the ba- last bastion of generalists in the law. So we handle everything federal. So that's federal, uh, criminal, uh, federal, civil, but it's all federal as a, compared to state court. So we're on this parallel track with the state courts. Uh, the federal courts are handling only matters of federal jurisdiction. So sometimes we explain it this way. We say that uh, we're courts of limited jurisdiction, federal courts, because the presumption is that if you have some legal matter, you'll go to state court. So in the Southern District, which covers 60 counties, the Southern 60 counties of Indiana, there are five uh, active authorized judgeships. I'm on senior status now, so we we have the five plus me, and I'm working at a 75% level docket. And uh, in Marion County, which is Indianapolis, there are 30-some uh, trial court judges. So that shows how much more business goes into state court. And the federal courts, as I started to say, are courts of limited jurisdiction. So when I explain it to School kids, which maybe is okay if I use that yeah, explanation <laughs> yeah. here. I say to the the school children, it's as if you had a, a legal matter you wanted to bring to court, and you'd knock on the door of the federal court, and one of us judges would go down there and open the door and say, why are you here? Because the, the assumption is you should be in state court. So you have to answer that question properly. Uh, you have to say, I'm here with a case that has arisen under federal law, either statute or constitutional. We call that federal question jurisdiction, or has arisen under the diversity of citizenship provision. So under our Constitution, those are the kinds of cases that can be brought in federal court. And that's why they say we're a court of limited jurisdiction you have to. And that's really what judges spend a lot of time doing at the beginning of each lawsuit is figuring out if you're entitled to be here. Understand. Okay. Um, and so when you talked about talking to school kids and trying to boil that down, let's go back a little bit and talk about your kids and uh, your grandkids. And then we'll jump more into, um, you know, what I wanted to level set so everyone at least knew what you did. And okay. um, but Let's talk about just a little bit about who you are. And you're an Indiana native. Yes, I am. I grew up in Mishawaka next to South Bend. And uh, I went to Bloomington, to Indiana University for undergraduate school. 
I graduated from law school at American University in Washington. Did you start at American? No, I actually started at uh, William and Mary. Right. That's the question of somebody who's read my resume because I was only there for one year. Well, George Schroer told me that. I have oh, to give yeah, him okay. some some credit here because I I also thought uh, American. Well, I initially I guess I thought you graduated from Indiana University Law School, but no, I undergrad. Got it. Okay. Um, but you were one of the first females in the law school at um, William and Mary. Yes. Well. Yes. Uh, women were being admitted into law schools. Um, we were certainly the exception, not the rule. In my class of 60 at William & Mary, there were three women. So we were the distinct minority. Uh, and then I transferred up to American University, largely so I could get a job uh, and work part-time while I was in law school. I was the second of six kids in my family. And I had sort of used up my allotment for college by the time I got to law school. So I had to figure out a different way without drawing down too much on my siblings' entitlements to mm -hmm. the family money. So I needed to have a part-time job, and I found a good one up in D.C. So I transferred up to American University. There are 150 in my class there and 10 women. So still very few of us, uh, but enough. Actually, American University was started by women, uh, the the uh, law school was started by oh, women. Interesting. So they had a, a rich tradition of admitting women and treating them equally. Uh, so anyway, that's when I, I started law school in 66, graduated in 69. Um, and then since I was in D.C., I stayed there, and I, I was really lucky because I got a job on Capitol Hill I worked first for a congressman for about nine months, and then I was hired to work for a senator, Senator Percy from Illinois, over on the Senate side. And I was a legislative assistant. I was the staff lawyer there. Uh, I was a brand-new lawyer. I was just green as grass. Kind of and, a scary place to start. Well, yes. Intimidating, I should say. Yeah. And I've said many times, you know, we work so hard. It was one of those jobs where you don't work nine to five. You work you know, until you drop. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of esprit de corps, a lot of uh, people who are working that same pace, that same sort of schedule. Um, and I've said many, many times over the years that I wish that I had known then what I think I know now, because I would have been a better legislative assistant. But I, I did my best. I worked really hard. Uh, Senator Percy was always complimentary, so he made me feel good, even though there were, I knew then, and I know now even uh, more clearly that there were gaps in things that I just didn't know then. That's what happens when you grow up and grow old. You fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that true for everyone, right? Yeah. That you look back and you think, man, had I, I mean, I think back to even just high school. Had I oh, worked yeah. half as hard in high school as I do in my adult life, yes, I totally. would have been the valedictorian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. instead... I had a decent grade point average. Yeah. and Well, and what, the other th skill you've acquired, because we, we do, we have to, especially if we're having families and um, trying to keep all the pots on front burners cooking along, is time management. And if I had been as good at time management in those days as I am, or I think I am now. I Life would have looked different. Yeah. 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 I'm going to pause real quick. If you can just put it like on your chin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect right okay, there. Yeah. Um, 
So when you mentioned, um, you know, your younger years, let's go back to talking about your family. Sorry, I keep yes. stepping over that. And I really okay. want to hear about you have three children. Mm-hmm. And um, how many grandchildren are you? Yeah, up to well, now? we'll start a little before that. Because... Oh, okay, because we need to talk about your husband. Yes. yes. <laughs> so uh, Ken and I were uh, high school classmates. We ran in the same pack. Uh, we were good friends. And uh, we both went to Bloomington together. We were good friends there. Uh, to Harvard. I worked for a year for the same reason I told you before I was working during law school. And then I started law school. So all the, all the years that he was in law school and then uh, in Germany in the military, um, we uh, stayed in touch. Uh, we would connect up when we both wound up back in Mishawaka for a vacation of some sort. Uh, so when we finally got married in 72, at the end of 72, I was working for Senator Percy. We had an election in 72. I was working on the re-election. He asked me to marry him uh, in the spring, early spring, February, March. And I said, well, I, I do have to see this election through. <laughs> so we can't get married till after the election. So that was his first experience of forbearance uh, <laughs> with respect to my schedule and uh, so anyway, that's when we got married, and when we got married, it really was two friends uh, who were becoming married, and we were friends all these years. We've been married 47 years. Yeah, congratulations. So uh, he's a really wonderful lawyer. He practiced law for a while. He was a partner at a law firm here in Indianapolis. It the The profession didn't take as well with him. He didn't like it as much. He didn't find it as fulfilling and satisfying as I did. Uh, When we were married at the end of 72, uh, I came here from Washington. I teased him at the time, and I said, why didn't you come to D.C.? Why did I have to come to Indiana? It was a a little glimmer of women's (laughs) lib coming through from me to him. And he says, you never asked me to move to D.C. So he sort of called my bluff. Uh, But by then, I'd gotten a job as an assistant U.S. attorney, And that was an interesting turn of events because uh, I didn't know when I applied for that job that they'd never hired a woman before. Wow. And the United States attorney is Uncle Sam's prosecutor in federal court. And uh, I I wasn't even entirely clear about that. Remember, I was young. Right. I was green as grass, as I said. So I was able to apply for the... Uh, a job as an assistant U.S. attorney because I had known through some Washington connections that they had a vacancy. And so I, I, the skids were not greased. I didn't get the job because of that, but I did learn of the vacancy through those connections. And I came out and applied, but I went through an interview. I met the, the staff. I didn't think too much about it. I didn't meet all the staff, but I didn't notice that there were no women lawyers. So I, I just didn't think about it really. And uh, then I got the job, and uh, we got married in uh, late November, came back from our honeymoon. I checked in with U.S. Attorney to say, okay, I'm here, but I would like to start maybe February because I just moved here. All of our wedding stuff was still in boxes, and all those chores had to be done. And the U.S. Attorney, Stanley Miller, to whom I will always be grateful, uh, said, no, no, come on, let's get you started. It was like in December. Uh, After our honeymoon, we'd gotten back. 
And I, he says, bring your husband too. And I thought, really? Because I thought I was just signing papers. And he says, no, no, bring your husband. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they just want to meet, you know, it's friendly. So when I showed up that day, uh, it was a full-blown press conference. Oh, my gosh. I was just going to say, was this a press conference? Yeah. Happily, <gasps> wow. I'd worn a dress and my pearls. Yeah. But I did not anticipate that. But I was familiar with press conferences from Washington, so I wasn't uh, completely without words on the occasion. And it turned out to be the above-the-fold story in the afternoon paper. It was back when we had two papers uh, of me being sworn in. And so it caught me completely off guard. I, I think I might have applied anyway if I'd known that. Um, but I was... I was sort of surprised by that. Yeah. So I'd then, say. you know, you're you're sort of um, received in a different way when you're the new person and they're turning a corner in terms of the local culture. So I felt uh, the weight of being the first woman uh, in the sense that I needed to do this well for other women. For myself, of course, I had my own uh, investments of pride and uh, wanting to do it well and correctly. But I did feel like I was being asked to open a door for other women. So I w I needed to do this in a way that would make it possible for other women to follow. Um, so it turned out to be uh, work that I really enjoyed and was good enough at that it reinforced the desire to, to practice law in that way. So uh, I loved being an assistant U.S. attorney. I tried a lot of cases. I found out that I had skills that I hadn't otherwise had a chance to develop. And uh, I loved working with the people. I loved working in this court as an assistant. Um, Stanley Miller left as the U.S. attorney and was replaced by uh, James Young. He appointed me to be his first assistant, which was like the chief of staff. Uh, we uh, um, were both replaced when the White House changed, mm -hmm. when Carter became president. That's the way you do it. Whoever's the U.S. attorney and generally the first assistant because you're in a policymaking position then, uh, step aside so that the president can appoint uh, the president's own U.S. attorney. Sure. So that's when I went to private practice at the firm of Bose McKinney here in Indianapolis. They were wonderfully receptive uh, to welcome me. But that's where Ken had practiced. Oh, okay. And so, so was he there when you... Well, sort of. The, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a funny story because he was on his way out. He had decided that he didn't want to practice, at least not full-time. And he talked to the, the firm uh, partners, and they said, okay, fine, do part-time, do have counsel. But that, uh, and it made it possible really for me to come. That's not why he left. He was going to leave anyway. But we didn't have a nepotism rule that we had to dance around. But I think we might have run right into that sure. if there had been one. And so Ken was pulling back from a full-time practice. We had uh, two babies at that time, one age one and three. And little babies, and what were who? Who did you have at that time? Of our kids, yeah. We, Who's Kate, first and second? Kate okay. is our oldest. Okay, Su Susan's the second. 
So we had two kids, and we had decided to build a house in the country. So we were living an hour south of Indianapolis, which added that commute. So nothing about this makes real good sense. <laughs> uh, and we were we were really making sort of ad hoc decisions based on things we liked and things we knew. We knew we wanted to have children. We knew we wanted to raise our children. So if two people have a fast-track job, it's, it's very hard to work in raising your children because, you know, they get sick or they have to go to the pediatrician or something. You know, something's always popping up. They're real little people. Mm -hmm. and they have their needs. Yeah. So Ken didn't pull back from practice to do that, but it was how it all unfolded that he turned out to be the person who was on site when the kids needed uh, special attention. And we had a babysitter to, who, to whose home we took the children. She was not live-in. So anyway, uh, it, got, it all got a little complicated around then because I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, went to private practice. Ken pulled back. We had these two small babies. We had to find a new babysitter on the south side. All the the logistics that every working mother knows about. Well, and even with the, even though he was on site, as you say, like to help, you still were having to get up in the morning and then drive an hour into the office and drive an hour home. And I'm sure there are just, you know, there are just things that moms do, right? Yes. right? That dads don't, or maybe not, but I mean, you know, it's, it, there are still needs that the children still needed you. And oh, that's yes. a lot on you to yeah. be having such a demanding job so far away, even though you had the help of a babysitter and of your husband. At yes. Home. Uh, as I said, I, I became very good at time management. Yeah, I bet. And the babysitter was halfway between our house in the country and my work here in Indianapolis. So they would, I would get them into the car you know how uh, a two-year-old does not know what hurry means? <laughs> I, uh, yes, and neither does my six-year-old or my almost yeah. four-year-old or, and well, my littlest one yeah. doesn't count. But it, It's very hard to get them to move according to your schedule. So uh, the other thing was that um, I, I, I adore Ken Barker, so don't think otherwise, but uh, he's a night person and I'm a morning person. So... We found that it was counterproductive to have him get up in the morning to help with getting us all off because he was not good. He was sort of, in the law, we would say he was an attractive nuisance because he <laughs> distracted the kids. He didn't keep them on task because he just sort of sit there. Mm -hmm. And he didn't seem to be able to pour a bowl of cereal or something. He just <laughs> he was up out of a sense of duty, but he was not productive. So we agreed I would do mornings, he would do nights. And but when I would come rolling around uh, the bend, bringing everybody home at night, um, exhausted, uh, done, saying I'm not going to do this another day some nights. I mean, it was really, it was challenging to keep up with it. Uh, he was always there to come bring the kids in from the car and uh, he had fixed supper. He always had supper. As the kids got older worked even better because he was the one to help him do homework when I was empty, empty. Right. Well, isn't that so important to have that husband or partner that ha that can just balance you in that way? Oh, yes. In fact, many conversations 
between me and other working women friends uh, over the years have uh, focused on the fact of the importance of marrying the right person. Absolutely. And it's, it's not, there's not a perfect person. I mean, Ken didn't get a perfect person either, but between the two of us, we were pretty good at working things out. We've always, we didn't have any patterns for this because Ken basically eventually stopped practicing altogether. And I was the one who was practicing and he picked up all the slack with the kids uh, after they got in school, you know, when there would be school vacations or sick days or summer vacations, yeah. uh, he was the one that was required to make that part of the schedule work. And um, it did work, uh, and we figured out ways to do it when we never had a uh, an example or a pattern. We, were, we always said we were plowing the first furrow. Uh, that we're trying to get our bearings against good judgment, not against some pattern that we had seen. But the thing that made it uh, finally work for us was that we were both verbal. And we just talked and talked and talked until we figured out ways to make it work and ways that also honored each of our individual needs. Right. Was it perfect every day? No. Uh, but on the whole, it was perfect. And uh, our three kids, I think, would attest to the fact that uh, they're wonderful, productive, happy, normal human beings. So yeah. actually, I'll, I'll jump ahead to tell this story. So all three of our kids are in their 40s now. And they're all so married. So we have Kate and Susan. And then Grady. Grady. Came baby along. Grady. Yeah, baby mm -hmm. Grady. Mm -hmm. So Grady came along when I was in private practice so that, you know, we wound up with these three babies. And um, Grady was planned. I don't mean come along in a surprise well, sure, sort of Grady. way. Sure, no, Grady. No offense, No, Grady. I don't want Grady to think that he was <laughs> Well, my I, I am the third, mm -hmm. and my brothers call me um, an accident, a mistake, mm -hmm. the leftover junk. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is all, you know, they're my no, two brothers. That was not true with Grady. <laughs> yes. So anyway... Um, the uh, our daughter Kate was talking to me on the phone when Susan and uh, who was her younger sister was trying to make plans and uh, I don't even know exactly where they were they were out from under our roof but I don't think they were married and so forth but uh, the oldest child Kate was saying that her her sister Susan was completely unrealistic about her plans because Susan wanted to have a husband children and a job she and felt like that couldn't happen yeah and so kate <laughs> is giving me an earful about how that is completely unrealistic that you have to choose that you cannot be everything to everybody you can't have friends and still be a good friend to them you can't be part of your primary family as a good daughter or whatever that you just can't have it all and that her sister susan should wake up and smell the coffee and observe that it's impossible to have it all. Well, all I'm doing is listening to her carry on. Mm -hmm. And finally I said, Kate, who are you telling this to? And she said, well, that wasn't your life. You had dad. And I said, yeah, I had dad. But all the things you're talking about, I had too. And I had to 
arrange all of those things just like Susan's talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, Kate dismissed what I was saying as, you know, not analogous at all to what she was trying to persuade me of. And I got off the phone and I <laughs> recounted the conversation to Ken. And I said, you know, the really good news is Kate doesn't even see that that's what I was doing. That is really a good point. And none of them have wound up with bad mental illness because of it. <laughs> that's right. At least as they've disclosed it to me. Sure, right. So. As, as far as you know. Well, no, I think that is really a great story because it does show that, you know, you're raising your kids in an environment where they feel where they felt loved and safe and protected and had, I'm sure, everything that they ever needed. And they just, that was that normal. That, that your normal was their normal. And I think that's important because I do think so much of, in this day and age, especially with social media, it's so easy to look at somebody else's life and think, oh my gosh, they're doing this. At least I do this as a working mother. I'll get on and see, oh, so-and-so's at the zoo today and I haven't taken my kids to the zoo in months or um, you know, they went to the zoo with the babysitter, with the nanny and they didn't go with me. And you know, you can go down this rabbit hole of feeling like, mm-hmm. and really they're all, they, we've been to the zoo. They're fine. They, Mm -hmm. they, you know, they, and if they don't go to the zoo as much as somebody else, they're going to be just fine. Yeah. And I like that they see me doing what I love Mm -hmm. and, um, and going out and contributing to our family in that way. And I think that's important too. And so, um, not to say if, you know, not to start the mommy wars that if you're mm-hmm. not doing that, you're not contributing by any means. I just mean that I, it's, it's, it is easy to compare. Yeah. Um, well, you, you build a life and a lifestyle that includes them. So, you know, what do lawyers do? We make rules. So we came up with rules when Ken and I were raising the kids, living a, an hour out of town, which always meant when we had to come up here for professional things and so forth. It meant the babysitter and the long drive, etc. So we came up with some rules. I'll tell you a couple rules. Yeah, I'd like um, to hear these. And and we talked about them as that. Cause, so it's not. it was not rewarding to Ken to always accompany me to professional events and activities. So he didn't want to do that. And he made it clear that when I needed to go, it wasn't necessary that he go all the time. And so we had to talk about when was he going to go. So we came up with three rules. Because, of course, you know, it was my preference to be with him. But, of course, it meant disruptions with the babysitters and so forth, the distance. So we came up with three rules. The first one was if he wanted to go, of course. I was always happy to have his companionship. He's a great partner. He's a wonderful conversationalist. He's, I always say that people who know us best, I should say it this way, people who know us both prefer Ken's company because <laughs> he's such good company. I find that hard to believe. No, no, that, that's not too much of an exaggeration. So he's charming. He's delightful. Uh, so first rule was when he wanted to go, yes. The second one was if he hadn't shown up in a particular setting recently enough, the people would start to wonder if we were still married. So <laughs> every once in a while, he had to show up for something that was a bar association thing or in some other setting where he he, he needed to be visible as a, a spouse, my mm-hmm. husband, uh, just so people didn't wonder. Sure. And gossip, I suppose. 
Uh, and the third time that he was required to show up was if it was a black tie dinner dance. Okay, because you didn't want to be by yourself. <laughs> I didn't want to be thrown to the wolves I don't blame in you. my formal. I don't blame you. <laughs> uh, without can be in there. So we didn't accept a lot of those invitations, but we had some. Those were the three. Those are good rules. We had some corollaries, like you learned in geometry. <laughs> we, had, we had our corollaries. One was that we would only accept one invitation a weekend that excluded the kids. We have that same rule in our house. Yeah, it's a good rule. So the kids knew that they were not going to be left behind, you know, all of Saturday while we went to some football game or to some outing or something, and Friday night, and whatever, just once on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And the other corollary that I developed was that for invitations that I received, because I received a lot in my public life, um, for me to accept an invitation for an evening event, for example, where Ken was invited, they had to be as interested in having Ken there as they were me. Okay, that makes sense. So, because I didn't want him to feel like he was just tagging along or a bauble or all the things that make me protective of him. Sure. And make him unhappy because he's being talked past. So they had to be as interested in Ken as they were in me. Well, that narrows the field quite a lot because some people didn't even know Ken. So if it was that sort of relationship, I would fulfill that social responsibility at noon. I would have lunch with those people. And that's that, a good idea. Yeah. It discharged the, the, uh, the social obligation. It also gave me the contact that I like to have with those friends. I mean, I, it wasn't all duty. It was pleasure too. Sure. So we had to, we had to work those things out. But really, I mean, paving the way in many ways, like you said, because looking looking at life now in 2020, there are a lot of working moms. There are a lot of moms who work and husbands stay home, but that's still not as common as husbands working and moms staying home, exactly. I would say. And so for you, we're talking, we're talking 30 years ago for you to be the primary 40, 40, 40 years, years ago. We're talking, you know, oh gosh, that's nuts. I mean, Time yeah, just that's why I say um, <laughs> there there weren't any examples. There were no examples. Yeah. Now, and interestingly, when we you know we sort of moved into this life incrementally because you don't really jump in and right. say now everything's changed. So you're making decisions as you go. But when Ken wanted to stop practicing law as a partner, a well-paid partner, I might say, a successful partner in a major Indianapolis firm, I. Uh, all four parents arched an eyebrow over that one. The, all four of your parents. Right. Both couples. Okay. Mm -hmm. They couldn't quite figure out why this Harvard lawyer right. who was doing well and was successful and so forth wanted to stop practicing law. And his wife wanted to continue practicing law full time. And they wanted to have children. And they wanted to live in the country. And right. how's this going to work? Right. <laughs> so the person who was most understanding and most supportive of this was my mother. And it was my mother who had to sort of interpret it to the other three parents. And uh, I came to see that what she, what sold her on this was that this was a way in which her daughter, who was me, could fully develop my talents and that we had worked out a way 
that was going to allow me to do that without sacrificing Ken's own interests. I mean, Ken was doing what he wanted to do too. And the reason we know this, we said it at the time, the reason this worked for us was that neither side of the equation, neither Ken nor I, felt relegated to our roles. And I have mentored and counseled and chatted with and given advice to many young women uh, over the years. And I relish that role. I'm happy to do that. I think it's one of my responsibilities as well as my pleasures. But one of the things I always try to make clear is you have to figure out a life that is fulfilling to both partners. Neither one can feel like they're living a sacrificial life for the other. Right. So it's hard, and you have to make the decisions under um, circumstances that require some compromising, but it's possible. I've been on the receiving end of that advice, and so I do appreciate and have taken it to heart. Um, we sat just across the street at Yoke one day yes, for breakfast, yes. and this was when I was pregnant with our third and uh -huh. sitting there explaining to you, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you gave me great advice then. So I'm glad I, I it do. was good advice. Yeah. Um, so let's switch gears a little and talk about being appointed to the U.S. District Court and, and Southern Indiana. And that is an appointed position by the President of the United States. Yes. So this may be a really dumb question, but it you were appointed. It won't be dumb. Okay. Well, you were appointed by Reagan. Yes. Um, what happens there? Do you get a phone call from, hey, this yeah. is Ronald let Reagan. How's a, it let going? Me, let me give a running start <laughs> okay. to the answer so okay. you can see how it happened. Okay. Uh, because another thing that I have learned over the years is that there's no no straight line forward. You don't live your life in a straight line. You're not picking off tin cans on fence posts with your BB gun. Right. Life unfolds, and you only see the straight line when you look back. So a lot of things happened that were that were very fortuitous, uh, uh, just by happenstance they occurred. And you think, you know, maybe your life unfolded in a way you planned each step. That was not true. So I want to make sure uh, people understand yeah. that. Because part of the the way it works is to have enough courage, enough hot spot to grab at the ring when it comes around. Because you never know when the ring's going to come around. Do you know the Lincoln quote? That's the famous Lincoln quote, I will prepare and make ready and maybe my chance will come. No, but I love it. It is. It's it's words to live by. Okay, say it one more time so we can hear it again. I will prepare and make ready, and maybe my chance will come. I love that. So you control the part you can control. Prepare and make ready. The other stuff is stars aligning. So here's how these stars align. So I went into private practice. Uh, President Reagan was elected after President Carter. I a new U.S. attorney was going to be appointed. Now, when I say President Reagan, you need to understand that the political reality is that it was mostly Senator Luger mm -hmm. and Senator Quayle. Okay. It's the senior senator of the party in the White House, which was Luger. Okay. So he created a process for choosing a new U.S. attorney, and he had a panel, an interview panel of good citizens, uh, who interviewed candidates, and I was selected to be the U.S. attorney. So it wasn't too big a leap because I'd been first assistant sure. U.S. attorney 
four years later after private practice, I got the nod to come back as U.S. attorney. So were you the first female U.S. attorney? No, okay. I, I followed Virginia Dill McCarty, okay. who was the first. Okay. So I uh, was a wonderful U.S. attorney, by the way. And uh, so then in 1981, I became the U.S. attorney and I served there. Um, I was serving happily. I liked being U.S. attorney. Uh, we had wonderful lawyers on our staff. It was rewarding, fulfilling work. And then Judge Holder uh, died suddenly over a Labor Day weekend in 1983. And uh, his seat on our court had to be filled. I had not planned to apply to be a judge. I'd never thought about being a judge. I hadn't even thought really about being a U.S. attorney before that. So I wasn't going to do anything about it until some friends were saying that it seemed obvious that I would apply since I'd been U.S. attorney, and that's in the same court in the same district. So I thought, okay, okay, I'll apply. Mm -hmm. So we went through another uh, um, interview process with a, a committee. Now, this always, I, this is sort of interesting history. Uh, the three finalists for the judgeship were uh, Randy Shepard, who was an Evansville judge who mm -hmm. became Indiana's chief justice mm -hmm. and a dear friend, and a wonderful, gifted judge. Uh, Sue Shields, mm -hmm. who was on the Indiana Court of Appeals and one of my closest friends. You well, you'll have to tell the story about in a minute, the one yes, you're just telling I will. about for her. But we, we were friends We've been friends all our careers. She was the first woman elected judge, in, state court judge in Indiana, and just an iconic presence among the Indiana judiciary um, and especially women uh, in the legal profession, and me. So those were the three finalists. I never have been uh, able to come up with a good answer as to why I was chosen from those except for the fact that I was the one who had the most federal experience. So I was selected um, by President Reagan uh, with input from both of our senators, Quayle and Luger. Um, and I became a judge in uh, March, uh, March 31st of 1984. So because I was U.S. Attorney, I was sort of a known quantity at the Department of Justice. So I didn't need a lot of vetting. And uh, the senators vouched for me. So I just sort of glided through the process. This was before you had to pass uh, litmus tests on judicial philosophy and all of that. And I sure had tried a lot of cases. So I knew how to handle the work of the, the federal district court. It's not to say I'd ever been a judge before, but uh, I was able to, to learn that. So I became a judge then. Uh, as for the specifics, it was uh, President Reagan's practice to call up the people that he was So you uh, did selecting. get a call. I did get a call. <laughs> that was sort of fun. Um, I, I had been um, uh, having lunch with one of my women friends, Mary Marsh, who was the trust officer over at Merchants Bank at the time. And we'd eaten over at the bank, and it was at the Hyatt building. And I was headed back to my office over here. 
And I stopped by the card shop there to buy Valentine's. That's how I remember the, <laughs> the time frame. And Mary came running down. I don't th know that she knew I was going to stop at the card shop. Maybe she did. And she said, the president's trying to reach you. The president's trying to reach you. And I said, oh. You said, well, hang on. I'm in the middle of buying my Valentine's. He's going to have <laughs> <So> to wait. <laughs> she says, come back up to my office so I didn't have to you know, run across town over here to the courthouse. So I went back up to her office. I had a number that my office had given me. And I called back into the White House switchboard. And that's sort of an interesting process because you go through about six stops. I'm sure. And you say who you are, and they send you on to the next stops. And then pretty soon, uh, President Reagan's voice. And we talked for, I would say, two minutes. Uh, he was wishing me well. He was expressing confidence uh, in his choice. He said he, he was confident that I would serve well. And I said back to him, I always hoped that I would serve in a way that would, would make him proud. Mm -hmm. So it was a wonderful, brief, cordial conversation. And I ran back to my office and I typed it up because, you know, you couldn't record the conversations that... Oh, so you'd remember exactly. And I remember, yeah. That's now, neat. could I put my hands on that piece of paper in 15 minutes? I don't think so, but it's in my papers. Well, and probably the fact that you wrote it down and just recalled it so easily means yes. you remember it. Yeah. You don't need to read, read the paper. That's right. So then you were sworn in mm -hmm. by Reagan. No, no. Oh. Here in the district court. Oh, he doesn't come for the... No. Okay. Mm -mm. But the senator was here okay. to say nice things. It was a wonderful swearing-in ceremony here. This, the court sits on bonk when a new judge comes. So if you looked around, you would see a picture of the court, the five judges, when I became uh, a member of the court. Now, were your kids here for that? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. really special. Grady, we have a picture of Grady who fell fast asleep Aww, during the ceremony. Buddy. But <laughs> uh, that, in fact, in the the Johnson County paper, because we lived down that way, the photographer got a picture of Grady completely zonked. Oh my but gosh, he was just so he funny. was just a little boy. So. Now, was that the swearing in in the courtroom that you practice in now? The, yes, but the swearing in was in the ceremonial courtroom down the hall. Okay, not the. But okay. I I took these chambers when I first came, so these have always been my chambers. Okay, yeah. Um. So. And that was 1984. So uh, now we are talking 35 Five. years ago. Yeah. And so um, let's just, gosh, there has been so much change, I'm mm -hmm. sure, in the legal um, world. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest things that you have noticed or that you do notice now when people are coming into your courtroom? Um, are there common themes, one or mm -hmm. two, with the people who are coming in? Well, when I first started, of course, I was the first woman sure. uh, on our court. I was the first woman federal judge in Indiana. I was the first woman for a long time on the federal bench in both districts. It wasn't until uh, Teresa Springman was appointed up in Fort Wayne that there was a second woman federal judge. So I would say... She's been on the bench maybe 20 years. Oh, wow. So, so you were I, the first woman for a long time yeah, by yourself. Yes, yeah. the Lone Ranger for a long time. Uh, so that was one of the most obvious factors, that I was the odd person out. Uh, a lot of people were not comfortable with having a woman judge. Uh, I got referred to as sir uh, fairly often. As a... 
an accident or people would do well, that on purpose was, to be cutting? You know, they'd go on automatic pilot. Uh, they, they just fell back into the usual form. Uh-huh, so it, sure. it wasn't intended to be a poke. Uh, although there was this one guy who appeared and he was before me. I, 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 can't, it was a, I can't remember if it was a civil or criminal case, but I think it was a criminal case. And his lawyer said he wanted to address the, the court before the proceedings. And I said, okay, there was no jury. So I said, okay. So he steps forward from the the lawyer's table and uh, into the well of the court, and he has his Bible with him. And he opens his Bible, and he starts reading to me from someplace in the First Testament, the Old Testament. And it's back in the early part, you know, the Old <laughs> Testament prophets. <laughs> and there's some... I should go back and find this just to satisfy my own curiosity. But there's some passage that says that women should not sit in judgment over men. Ah, good and, idea when you're being judged yeah. by a woman. <laughs> good thinking, buddy. So I let him read it. He seemed relieved to be able to put his point of view out there and read it. Missing the obvious that perhaps you don't want to lead with that in your own defense. But anyway, <laughs> He finished. Yeah, think. I said, uh, "Well, thank you for reading that." Uh, I said, "But this this is a court that operates under the Constitution. That is our authority, not the Bible. Right. And the Constitution permits women to sit as judges. And I am the judge of your case. So we'll proceed now." So I, I did let it him change have your say. opinion. Did it change my opinion? I mean, did it change your judgment or what you would have? Oh, no, no, no. People are people. So it gave me a good story. I wonder what he's doing now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he didn't escape whatever the consequences were of his behavior at the time. I know that. He may be one of those guys I see on the street corner who has like the microphone and yells at women as they walk by. Yeah. Yeah. That could be him. Yeah. They're not, they haven't all gone away. That's fortunately. So you, so that obviously you had that um, barrier, if you will, to be up against that you were yeah. the first woman, and the there first was a credibility a gap. Sure, there was. I uh, I know that there was concern about whether this was going to work out in the lawyers and their clients' best interest. What does this girl judge know anyway? Um, when you got a case that involved, you know, discrimination uh, claims on gender grounds. I think that for some litigants, it made them feel like they had somebody who might understand it well. And the opponents, of course, thought that I wouldn't understand their side. So it plays both ways. And what you have to do is sort of park that factor in your judgment. You know, Sandra Day O'Connor was asked a question I, I, I... uh, have had the good fortune of having my career parallel hers. Mm-hmm. And we've been acquaintances, not friends. We don't socialize. Uh, but I've just been a huge admirer of hers. And when she uh, was appointed to the Supreme Court as the first woman, somebody asked her um, if it made a difference to have a woman making these decisions. And she said she thought that wise women and wise men would come to the same conclusions. I like that. That it doesn't have to do with gender. It has to do with wisdom and, and the general ability to, to, to make a reasoned, just decision. So that's how I think, too. Yeah. And you've made some difficult ones, I'm sure. Yes, there have been a lot of cases. I, I, there, people ask, 
what's your favorite case? What's your most memorable case? What was your hardest case? It's very hard to answer that question. First of all, there have been so many. And secondly, uh, they're different. You know, they're not comparable. You, it's apples and oranges. And they'll be difficult for different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's a difficult client that a lawyer may have to manage and need the court to help manage the client's expectations. Uh, sometimes it's weak lawyering, and you have to sort of help the parties along when uh, there's a power or effectiveness differential between the lawyers. You don't want to have an unjust result because one uh, wheel on the wagon is wobbly. Mm -hmm. So you, you're looking out for the overall process. Sometimes the law is not well developed yet, so it leaves a lot of gaps. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the problems are just hard. They're just difficult. It's hard to figure out how to weigh it all and, and uh, have it result in a, a proper decision. One, some of the hardest decisions that I made, I can say this categorically, were when we had to follow the sentencing guidelines, which were really in their original state were not guidelines. That was a, it was recipe cooking. You had to put on the straitjacket. There were a lot of mandatory minimum sentences, a lot of um, inflexibility. They weren't, as I said, guidelines. They were marching orders. And it was driven by arithmetic, not even mathematics. Hmm. So it was add two, subtract three, move over two columns on the sentencing table and so forth. And the judges were expected to just get in line and impose that decision. Theoretically, there were some grounds for departures, but not very many. And the guidelines were pretty draconian. They were very harsh. And when a, a mandatory minimum sentence was driven by a drug quantity, mm. for example, I, I, I had to hand down sentences in which everybody in the courtroom, including the prosecutor, thought the result was unjust. But our obligation is to uh, enforce the law apply the law. That was the law. It wasn't up to me to decide to do it a different way. So those were some of the hardest decisions. And we so you mean, sorry to interrupt you, you mean just to clarify that you would have to impose sentences that you thought were too strict that correct. didn't meet the crime, the punishment did not fit the crime. And because that was the law, that's the way it had to it be. It was cookie cutter. Sure. It was just cookie Has cutter. Has that changed? Yes. Okay. So we had a decision from the Supreme Court that made, it's called the Booker decision. Mm-hmm. Like Cory Booker. Yeah, is, I feel like I've read about this. Name, I probably should His name you might recognize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was a candidate um, oh. for president. But yes, okay. The, the Booker <laughs> decision uh, was the one in which the Supreme Court decided, no, no, these are advisory guidelines. And then there, there have been some interpretive decisions since then, but Booker was the watershed decision that opened it up. Now, not for the statutory mandatory minimums. So, for example, the, this very morning, I imposed sentences uh, that were in child pornography uh, uh, statutes. One one violation had a mandatory minimum 15-year sentence. Another of the statutes of which this person was convicted had a mandatory minimum of five years. Okay. So we're still bound by what the statute says as to the mandatory minimums, but not all the sentencing factors so after the statute sets the boundaries, the judge has discretion within 
those boundaries. And that allows you to have more flexibility, more discretion uh, to impose uh, a just sense of uh, the, the obligation. This is a word of art. The sentence has to be reasonable. And that's reasonableness as measured by law. So that's what we're trying to strive for. There are factors that are specific that we're supposed to take into account. But the overall sentence is supposed to be a legally reasonable sentence. So just to have that power back uh, as a judge, you know, sentencing discretion is like a pipeline. Uh, so if you, it flows, it goes back and forth. And the, the participants in the process, the prosecution, the defense, and the judge, uh, who exercise power over the flow of discretion. In some contexts, one or more of those participants will have uh, a, a higher amount of discretion, a larger amount of discretion. But if you pinch it off at one point, it doesn't do away with discretion. It pushes it back into the realm of the other partisans. So, for example, the sentencing regimen that we were under with the original guidelines pinched off discretion at the judicial point in that pipeline. Mm, I see. It took discretion away from the judges. You just had to follow what the law said without... Right. So it didn't mean there was less discretion. It meant that somebody else in the pipeline had more. Well, under our system, the preponderance of discretion is never going to be given to the defendant. Mm-hmm. That's not how we see the world. So the prosecutor had inordinate discretion. They could decide what to charge, who to charge, how many offenses to charge, how many enhancements for mandatory minimums, and other aggravating factors like use of a gun and so forth. So it became it's a form of recipe cooking where you just add ingredients. Mm -hmm. And they could create a sentencing regiment that was just breathtakingly harsh. That's why now recently we've had the First Step Act. We've had reforms with respect to equalizing the the disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Those have all come as a way of ameliorating the harshness of the sentencing guidelines. I was going to ask you about that. Do you, I know you can't talk about specific cases, um, but is would you say that opioids, drug use, um, are just kind of the underlying theme of most of the people who are coming in the court? Oh yes, the prevalency of drug addiction, drug use, uh, drug-related lifestyles, where everything revolves around getting, using, um, stealing, needing drugs is very much at the heart of, uh, I would say, most of our criminal cases. Mm -hmm. Not white collar so much, uh, but all of the the um, the drug offenses themselves. But pharmacy robberies, bank robberies, um, all, and and those factors come out of huge dysfunctionality in families and in homes. Uh, the the ways in which some children in our community, in our southern district, and this, you just, it's replicated everywhere, but I'll speak of my district. The ways in which we require uh, some children to live and grow up uh, 
gives them virtually no other choice. Mm. They they are like weeds coming through the the cement in the sidewalk. Mm. That they make it to adulthood at all at all is a surprise because it's violent, it's demeaning. There's nobody. They never know night to night where they're going to be staying. There's no stability in the family. There are generations of people who are addicted and who are in and out of prison, who abandon their children. And um, the number of children, especially, I'll just say children, but um, who are raised without a father figure being present at all, mm-hmm. never mind in a meaningful, healthy way, is it's just uh, jaw-dropping. Really, you think if if there are no men raising these kids and they're out there trying to make their own ways without either models, if they're children, or support or protection, all the things that fathers provide, and I don't mean stereotypical fathers. Right. I just mean the importance of two parents right. in the family. Um, but when they lack those influences... Uh, they spent the rest of their lives trying to get approval and get re uh, affirmation that they're good people, that they've got potential, that they're not cast-offs. They spend their whole lives working on those feelings of insufficiency and uh, inadequacy. How do you go home at night then and put that off, Judge Sarah? Well, that's, that is a good question because look how long I've been doing this. Right. I, and I suppose there, there are a couple of questions, uh, a couple of answers to that question. One is that it is your life work. So in the same way that you expect a medical doctor to step up and do what has to be done, if it's an incision, if it's an amputation, if it's delivering bad news about terminal cancer, if it's whatever, the professional role requires you to uh, to attain a certain level of uh, objectivity sure. about what you have to do. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, as touching as many of these stories are, you don't give over to that emotion, as in tears, for example, at the bench. Have you ever cried at the bench? No, I get off the bench. If you when have I to feel cry. that, I okay. say, well, well, we'll take a we'll take a brief recess. I can usually get those words out. Sure. Have I felt it? Oh, sure. Have I had a lump in my throat? Have I had to wait a minute? Oh, yes. But if I can't uh, staunch it to that extent, then I say, well, we'll take a brief recess. And then I gather myself and go back and do what I need to do. So that's one thing. It's, It's my professional obligation to do what has to be done. And many times it's hard. I... The other part is that there are so many decisions ahead of you that you don't dwell too much on the ones that you've already made. In fact, that was a piece of advice I got when I first became a judge, and that was don't dwell too much on the decisions you've made. Make them the best you can when you make them. Do it the right way. Do it well. And then let it go. If you made a bad decision likely there'll be an appeal and somebody else will look at it. Uh, the, an appeal doesn't cure everything, but at least it allows you to go on and do the next one. 
Are there some cases that stick with you forever that you can't let go? Oh, yeah. In fact, I remember um, getting grouchy about a conversation. Grouchy. (laughs) Internally grouchy. (laughs) I suppose there are some people in the Southern District of Indiana who have seen me grouchy. I've never been tried in your courtroom, (laughs) let's be clear. (laughs) Yeah, well, what what I was thinking about was listening to. Uh, some new judges talk, new federal district court judges, after we had the guidelines, who had never uh, exercised the sentencing powers and discretion without the guidelines. So see, I'm a pre-guideline judge. I had to figure out within this broad statutory range what a sentence would be that was reasonable without the help of the guidelines. So here come the guidelines, and they're really sort of, as I told you, they're handcuffs. And they so limit your discretion. That's what was frustrating about it, because you couldn't do what you thought would be a right outcome. Right. And right outcome meant that it had some therapeutic, some rehabilitative potential. It didn't destroy the rest of the family in the process. I mean, there are lots of ways you can say a sentence is just or unjust not just measuring the time. So I was listening to some new judges talk, and they were singing the praises of the guidelines because they said, isn't this great? You just run the guidelines. It gives you your sentencing range, and you just pick a number in that sentencing range. And I didn't say anything to them, of course, because it wasn't my place, and I didn't want to pick fights. But I thought at the time, if you don't agonize over a sentencing decision, you're you're not morally equipped to do this job because there are some decisions you have to make that will hurt, that will leave you feeling like you failed, even though it's a lawful decision because the outcome isn't right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, do I remember those cases? Quite a number. Actually, this is another way. I know that I married the right person because I could carry those home and because Ken's a lawyer. He hears it with lawyers' ears. And almost always he's reinforcing, oh, that was a good decision, he'll say. Right. I, and he, I don't think he was faking it. No, I think, I think sure. he was giving me approval. Can you give us so, one example? Yes, I'll tell you one. Um, there's a young woman who has uh, sort of gotten, uh, like a lot of teenagers do, out from under uh, her parents' uh, influence. And she was just going to make her own decisions. And she was making uh, uniformly bad decisions. And one was that she was smitten uh, by this guy who was, oh, I don't know, maybe eight or ten years older, who was deep into drug use and drug dealing. And uh, she was dabbling in drugs, but he was the one that was uh, operating out of bounds. And I... They had a baby. They weren't married. So here's this toddler. um, And uh, she's trying to keep him happy and uh, him, the the drug dealer companion partner. And the baby had to be cared for. And uh, she was uh, relying on her parents to help manage the baby because the baby was just a toddler. I I don't even know if the baby was a year old yet. Mm. So they decided to go to a rock concert, and the the drug 
dealing boyfriend decided it would be a better rock concert if he'd taken some drugs with him and they could take him during the concert. It was not marijuana. It was something like cocaine or something. It was not meth. This was before all the meth uh, opioid um, problems mm -hmm. arose. So it was probably cocaine. And uh, there'd been an undercover officer in their social group. And uh, this drug-dealing boyfriend uh, dropped the drugs into the diaper bag that the young woman had because she had the baby. They took the baby to the rock concert. And so when they did the search, she's the one that had the drugs. And they knew he had had a part in it. He didn't escape prosecution, but she was sucked right into the prosecution because she was in possession of the drugs. So there, because of the quantity, there was a mandatory minimum five-year sentence. And she had no prior criminal history. Uh, and so here they both come, charged in the indictment for possession with the intent to distribute uh, cocaine. And um, there was no escaping the, the facts of the case. She had the drugs, so did he. And he wound up getting a more severe sentence because they had some other stuff on him. But she had that f mandatory minimum five-year sentence. Her parents are out in the back. Now, I don't mean to gild the lily here. This is really what I remember. But I think I remember that her parents were a minister and his wife. So, I mean, that's how far this wow. daughter had departed from the yeah. way. And they're out there just just mortified. They're speechless. Mm -hmm. And there's no way around the mandatory minimum. So I have to send the young woman off to prison for five years. And so now who's going to raise the baby? And there yeah. were probably other sensing options if I had had them. A halfway house, uh, some sort of home detention. But you didn't have that choice. I had no choice. Now, do you say that when you're on the bench? I, I have do. no choice here. This is what I have to do. I'm, I'm bound by the statute. Wow. And that's the one where I referenced earlier that it was a case where nobody felt like this was a just result. Right. Even the prosecutor was alert to the injustice of it, but they couldn't dismiss the charge. Wow. They weren't going to. So I have thought about that woman, but I thought more about the baby. Yeah. And I know that it was the parents back there, the grandparents, who wound up having to raise that baby. Was that good? Was that what society needed? That woman's, I mean, the woman was responsible for that drug possession. No, no doubt about it. But she was mostly responsible for falling in with such a no-count. Mm -hmm. And she could have learned that lesson without having to go to prison for five years. Right. So. Hmm. That's a hard one. Mm -hmm. That one you go home and have a hard time shaking off. Yeah. Well, you can, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So and I still remember it as, but there, there are, for, for every case, uh, there's something that makes it either worse or better. Uh, the judge holder used to say, because, you know, I practiced a lot before all the judges here, before I became a judge, so I would listen to what they said. 
And Judge Holder used to say, uh, I've never met anyone who was totally bad. And I was a prosecutor at the time. Mm -hmm. And I never really toyed with that idea much. But he had been a judge a long time. He'd he'd served like 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I thought, really? And I can say now at the end of 35 years, moving on to 36, I don't think I've met anybody who's totally bad either. Yeah. That there's always something, not always an excuse, but many explanations. And it gives you a window into humanity that that uh, makes you understand how life unfolds uh, in really challenging ways for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Well, we are grateful that you gave us a window into your world oh, and what yeah, you do. Thank you. Well, um, I'm flattered that you wanted to hear about my world. Well, and we could talk for hours and hours. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to have done that with you for mm-hmm. nine months. As I I've part. made you listen to me for hours and hours. No, I was. Yeah. It was all my pleasure. Um, but we are grateful that. Um, the state of Indiana has you and the United States has you, um, you know, on the bench making really difficult decisions mm-hmm. to keep the rest of us safe in mm-hmm. some aspects and to, in others, just um, enact what is right and what is just and the difficult work that you have to do um, is admirable. And so we thank oh, you thank for that. You. Well, it's a trust. I feel it as a trust and a privilege uh, to have the opportunity to do this work because uh, it makes uh, the people who do it um, better people. You have a deeper understanding. It, it extends our reach into the community and into the lives of uh, uh, the people whose uh, interests intersect with the court. So I, honestly, it has been a huge privilege uh, to me to be able to do it. And you're going to keep going for <laughs> for a while. And you're going to write a yeah. book when? <laughs> no, I don't think I'll ever write a book. I, oh, that's really? not in me. No, uh, it's enough. I tell these stories to you in these kinds of settings, uh, and it's it keeps me alive to keep doing it. Yep. So uh, as long as I have good health and I feel like I can still bring all the the energy and the skills and the interest to it, uh, I, I, I'm lucky to be in a profession where. Older is equated with wiser. Um, I know there's a point at which that's no longer true, and I'll be alert to that. Yeah. Uh, and I've actually, that's sort of an interesting issue because uh, as health extends uh, the capacity to work for all of us, uh, we have to devise ways to make sure that. Uh, we don't stay too long. Sure. And f- this is a lifetime appointment, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so you have to build in some protections that are realistic so that you have people that you trust whom you've authorized to say, you've got to tell me if I'm missing it, if I'm losing it. And that's a trusted few uh, who can approach a judge and say, judge, Barker, and you know it's time, it's or time, you yeah. need to notice this, or whatever. So I try to stay alert to that. It requires um, a level of modesty. I hope I can, I can retain. Well, I have no doubt that if if that time does come, that you <laughs> will know. But also that we are lucky that that day is not today. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 
Um, well, we have some end of the podcast questions okay, that I want to ask you. We like to ask all, all of our guests these questions. Um, our podcast, the Illuminate podcast, originated from our supper club uh-huh, for good. couples getting together fairly regularly. Um, we all enjoy dinner and we also all enjoy podcasts. So we decided we would throw our hat into the ring. Well, I know some of the people in your yes, dinner you do. group and that would be uh, a lively group. No wonder something good like this has come from that. Yeah. I'd expect no less. We're very lucky to have each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we like to ask is, do you have a favorite recipe? I guess maybe we should call Ken, though, because as we've understood <laughs> from the beginning of these stories, that he was the cook, yeah. the resident chef at the Barker household. So. Yes, yes, and he is a really good cook. He, he's in the category of gourmet cooks. Wow. So, uh, mine is a much more utilitarian uh, form of uh uh, creativity. But the one thing that I make that my grandchildren know is grandma's specialty. And I bring to the law clerk events when we, when it's appropriate and so forth. I will give you the recipe. Please. And I'll this. put it on our it's, website. It's Bishop's Bread, oh, which is a form of uh, coffee cake mm. uh, that actually uh, uh, I got from Ken's aunt, who was a nurse, and they made it in the hospital where she worked because the ingredients are all easy, wholesome, hmm. and it's simple to make, and it's really good. Bishop's so, bread. Okay. Yeah. So I will tell you that uh, all of the Barker grandbabies, as well as our children, have been raised on Bishop's bread because there are two things I make in the morning. I told you I'm, I'm the morning person. Yes, I, I am too. I respect so that. So Bishop's bread is the one thing I make from scratch. Okay. The other is uh, blueberry muffins from a box. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are my two <laughs> themes. So. Both good. Well, we'll definitely link the Bishop's bread recipe okay, if you'd I'll be willing to, to give it to us. Yeah. Um, what is one person or one thing or organization that you would like to see illuminated to play off of the title of our podcast? Well, I didn't think of an organization uh, exa- exactly. Um, it, w- it was more uh, an insight. Can I do it that way? Absolutely. Okay. We will take it. So it has to do with what we were just talking about. And uh, that is that um, I would like bright light shown on the fact that there are an awful lot of people who, through no action or fault or responsibility of their own, uh, have to confront huge obstacles uh, in their lives. Um, there, there are all sorts of obstacles. Uh, but they basically um, start from a point of disadvantage. Mm. And then they get measured by all the usual societal measures, and it's harder for them because they didn't have the opportunities and the advantages. And so I see this in the court, that there are people who you just, um, quite apart from the illegal conduct that's brought them uh, before you, you have to admire their spunk, hmm. that somehow in the face of all these uh, huge challenges, they've carved out something of a life. Mm-hmm. So I just like people to have a, a deeper understanding. You know, often when I have a case that involves a notorious defendant, for example, what I've discovered over the years is that everybody postures tough with respect to sentences until they know the person. 
then the person becomes the exception. Oh yeah, all bank robbers, you know, they're they're they ought to be struck down and sent away for life. And drug dealers, you know, you ought to put them away so they're never released again. Unless, of course, it's the bank robber or the drug dealer that the person knows who's talking to me, who says, yeah, but he's the exception. Mm-hmm. He'd be, he's different. So I get letters from family members all the time who basically say, my my son's different. My husband, my wife, my whatever, my partner is different. So... We're quick to make harsh judgments until we have a connection. And so what I want people to feel is that connection coming into it. You don't have to actually know somebody. You don't have to have them on your Rolodex to feel an empathy and a connection and a sense of responsibility for them. Wouldn't the world operate so differently if we all just had a little more empathy? Yeah. You know, every day with that expression, which I, I've always liked, that it takes a village. The underlying reality is we are a village Mm -hmm. and it takes all of us and we have to respond in different ways we can't all be the person who you know runs to the door with the fire hose but we have to be there in some way or another so we are a village we're all connected and that's what we're seeing in so many ways around the world not just in our country and the saturation of media brings all these places and people and circumstances closer and closer and closer to us. So I'm, I don't think you have to feel overwhelmed by it. They're not all your responsibility in equal ways, but you just have to recognize that we are all connected. We all have a responsibility uh, to be uh, responsive and receptive, try to be understanding. And that means sometimes be firm, but at least recognize that the other person is dealing in a in a situation that you might not ever have had to confront yourself. And that may be your last, that may answer the last question, which is if you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? Because that was a pretty good message. Yeah, well, maybe I should let it go there. But I I do have one, one thought that I would put out besides the village and the responsibility thought. And that is that um, as a rule, Little thoughts are always, are almost always more important than big thoughts. And the little thoughts are the little things that prompt you to be kind or open or receptive. Write a note, hold the door, give somebody a smile. Uh, the, little, the little thoughts about how you're going to choose to live your life minute by minute, those are little thoughts and the little thoughts are almost always more important than the big thoughts where you're going to quote change the world or make the courts better it's it's all the little thoughts that will outweigh the importance of big thoughts and those little thoughts are within the reach and the capacity of everybody write a note hold the door give somebody a smile It's those little thoughts that are almost always more important than the big thoughts. Such words of wisdom. I could listen to Judge Sarah talk all day. I really hope you guys enjoyed our conversation today. 
Earlier in the show, we talked about the Stanley K. Lacey Executive Leadership Series. And if you live in Indianapolis and have interest in learning more about SKL, we've put some information to it on our website in the show notes. If you are loving Illuminate, we would take your rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we hope that you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at the Illuminate Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you back here next Wednesday.